This is Moravian Mornings, podcast discussing the history surrounding the Moravians who settled in Wachovia. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 10th episode of Moravian Mornings. I can't believe we're almost done with the first season, which is really exciting to think about. Today, we are going to be focusing on Fort Dobbs. You may be thinking why we chose to focus an episode on Fort Dobbs when we only briefly mentioned it in our previous episode. This is because this fort was the only fortification created by the colony of North Carolina in the area, and if the Moravians had had to retreat from Bethabara and Bethania during the time of the French and Indian War and Anglo-Cherokee War, they probably would have fled to Fort Dobbs. So it only makes sense for us to discuss this fort a little more. And what better way to do that than bringing on two of their staff members to speak with us? So before we get started, could you both discuss your positions at the site and your backgrounds in public history, if you have one? Sure. Yeah, well, my name is Scott Douglas, and I'm the historic site manager of Fort Dobbs State Historic Site. Um, I've worked at Fort Dobbs for 13 years now. Um, The last six of those, I've been manager there. And I've always been involved in public history, uh, especially in the uh, museum and especially living history museum end of things. Um, Prior to Fort Dobbs, I've worked at Old Salem. I've worked at, uh, uh, well, when I was in college at UNCG, like you guys, I was at Guilford Courthouse. Uh, I've worked at uh, uh, Petersburg, Pamplin Historical Park up there. Um, so kind of been all around, um, done all different types of museum work, part-time, full-time, uh, but Fort Dobbs is kind of, uh, well, it's by far the, the site I've been at the longest. What position did you hold at Old Salem? Uh, lots of different stuff, uh, mainly doing interpretation, but uh, I mean, I did everything from greeting people at the front door and giving them the spiel about the building to doing cooking demonstrations to, you know, dabbling in 18th century shoe work. Uh, raising tobacco, um, all sorts of different stuff. You did it all. Yeah, and and all of it comes in handy at Fort Dobbs because we have such a small staff there. Uh, there's just three of us on staff full time, and you know uh, a lot of that work. All of us bring, fortunately, a lot of different skills uh, into it, and so it, it serves me well there. All that experience uh, from those past sites. Hi, my name is Jason Melius. I am the historic interpreter at Fort Dobbs, and I've been involved in living history and volunteering at historic sites since 1993. And I've been volunteering at Fort Dobbs since 2006, but uh, full-time, been there for a little over a year. Um, But my background is actually in archives. Didn't you mention earlier that you also went to UNCG? I did. We're all just the UNCG squad. (laughs) That's really cool. Go Spartans. We've had a lot of people on from UNCG, which I think is really cool, too. All right. So our previous episode focused on Wachovia during the French and Indian War. We briefly discussed Fort Dobbs in the episode and mentioned that Fort Dobbs was the only fortification in the area constructed by the colony of North Carolina. Could you discuss the significance of Fort Dobbs and its role during the French and Indian War? Yeah, well, uh, Fort Dobbs was constructed, uh, well, starting in 1755 uh, by the orders of Royal Governor Arthur Dobbs. And uh, the purpose of it was to uh, enable a garrison of full-time provincial soldiers uh, to have sort of a base of operations uh, in the middle of the western frontier of the province of North Carolina. 
when war broke out between England and France in 1754, there were threats to the scattered settlers recently arrived on the North Carolina frontier, uh, part of a, the wave of immigration, people from Ireland, from German states like the Moravians at Mathabra, who had just recently come from Pennsylvania down to the area along the Yadkin and Catawba rivers. There was a real possibility that French allied Native American tribes, most notably the Shawnee, but other groups like the uh, Ottawa, the Ojibwe, could be launching attacks into the North Carolina Piedmont. They were actively uh, in 1754 and 55, you know, killing a lot of people uh, in Virginia, just a couple days walk north, basically. You know, the colony needed some level of defense. There weren't enough men living in the backcountry close enough together to be able to run the militia. Uh, and so full-time soldiers were sent out. And by 1756, they had built Fort Dobbs itself. Um, it ended up being the only fort on the Western frontier built and maintained by the colony with full-time soldiers. There are certainly civilian forts, like that one that was built at Mathabra by the Moravians themselves, but it was the only actual military post. Um, and for seven years, uh, it served that purpose, really. Would you be able to describe the connection between Fort Dobbs and Mathabra during the war? It's kind of been a tricky question to pin down because... There's a big gap in the Moravian records because Adelaide Freeze kind of selectively translated a lot of it. The first, however, interaction was between soldiers who were stationed out on, on the frontier, but before the fort was built. There's a, a neat passage on June 1st, 1755. It says, three strangers came by whom we suspected of being deserters as they wore military clothing and equipment but we took no notice of them to give them, uh, but gave them food for which they asked. From there, the interactions are very sparse until the 1760s um, during the Cherokee War, or Anglo-Cherokee War, excuse me. By the 1760, um, the fort was supplying Bethabra uh, with ammunition. And uh, of course the fort was attacked and news very quickly reached Bethabra, uh, which set about some panic there. About April of 1760, there were a bunch of frequent communications between the fort and Bethabra. Unfortunately, those letters don't survive, but there was a lot of back and forth. And then, of course, North Carolina provincial soldiers were constantly through Bethabra and Bethania. Even uh, some were offered to stay and def help defend the towns. But Moravians being Moravians, of course, they declined. Um, they don't want any more strangers than they already had. The last significant interaction between Fort Dobbs and, and the Fabro came in 1763 when a uh, thousand pounds of lead was sent to the Fabra in exchange for pottery. So do you care to talk a little bit about the significance of Fort Dobbs within a larger historical context of the area? The war itself, the French and Indian War and the Anglo-Cherokee War that comes out of it uh, are, you know, significant worldwide. Um, I mean, the French and Indian War becoming the Seven Years' War in Europe really sets the stage for the British and the French to determine their empires in the second half of the 18th century. The results that come out of those conflicts uh, set the stage for the American Revolution. Uh, to start just a, a little over a decade after the French and Indian War ends. Um, more locally, uh, I mean, the Anglo-Cherokee War proves to be incredibly destructive for the Cherokee people. 
Cherokee at the time of the conflict are predominantly living in the mountains of what is now North Carolina, but also touching down into Georgia, South Carolina, and certainly Tennessee. Um, and the military campaigns that the British and the colonial troops end up launching against them end up destroying a total of 23 of their villages. Uh, a huge amount of Cherokee territory in Western North Carolina uh, is ceded to the British uh, at the end of the conflict, um, really effectively moving the frontier 70, 80 miles to the west of Fort Dobbs overnight uh, when the war begins. So it opens up a huge amount of Western North Carolina to future settlement to for this uh, influx of immigrants to continue coming to North Carolina to push their boundaries, they and their children, uh, eventually going over the mountains themselves. And, you know, the Moravians, for their part at Bethabara, are affected uh, in large part, there, you know, the construction of Salem as the principal town is delayed because of the French and Indian War, because of the Cherokee attacks going on along the Yadkin River. And so when that war uh, comes to an end, uh, for the Moravians, uh, they're able to, you know, pursue Zinzendorf's plans to uh, expand their territory in Wachovia. We understand that Fort Dobbs has been reconstructed within the last few years. What practices are you using to tell the story of the fort? So the fort itself, for a long time, we just had an archaeological site preserved. Starting back in the early 1900s, uh, archaeology didn't take place until the 1960s, around the time Bethabara was being excavated. Um, actually, uh, Stan South uh, was the lead archaeologist who started the digs at Fort Dobbs um, as he was influential at Bethabara. The effort to rebuild the fort was a partnership between the state of North Carolina, which owns the property today, uh, and a nonprofit group, the Friends of Fort Dobbs. And after a long, long, long time of fundraising and planning and designs, uh, we were finally able to open the reconstruction in 2019. I mean, altogether, including the cellar, uh, is almost an 8,000 square foot, three-story high timber building. It's on the same location, uh, the same footprint as the original fort. The site was totally cleared archaeologically first. And we have it set up today as a full living history exhibit. So there's no artifacts inside. Uh, there's very few ropes or anything like that. Uh, you know, a visitor coming there can uh, hopefully experience walking through the fort with a guided uh, interpreter like Jason uh, does every day and such a great job being able to feel how the building, you know, the temperature at any given time of the year, we don't have heating or air conditioning in non-coronavirus times, they can pick up clothes, sit on the beds, you know, uh, uh, really get a sense of what it was like to live inside of Fort Dobbs. Along those lines, when we give tours of the fort, rather than talk about it, like an old house. We use the fort more as a uh, as a prop to talk about the humans. It's more about the human interaction and the individuals that were there rather than the stuff that's necessarily in the fort. It's a little bit different than a normal old house museum tour. Things like Scott said are, are interactive, but you know when we're in the storeroom, for instance, Rather than talk about the barrels of food as just barrels of food, we talk about the daily nutrition of the soldiers and the types of food that they ate and what their diets are like, um, trying to make it more tangible and real. What is your favorite part about working at the Ford? Hmm. For me, it's always been 
uh, talking to visitors about the history. You know, like I said, I, I've been at the fort for a long time. And for a large portion of my time there, we had a hole in the ground, a former archaeological site to tell people about. Jason was involved uh, at all, during all those years as well. And like Jason just mentioned, talk about the stories of the people who were there was kind of our only way for a long time to connect with visitors, try to make a, a hole in the ground interesting uh, and try to make it relevant to people. Um, and having the fort uh, now, again, uh, is, is a really good backdrop and a great tool for us to have. But it, it's talking to people. I mean, we had, you know, we have visitors uh, on a daily basis who, you know, some people don't know anything about the French and Indian War. And you get to let them know about this incredibly important but understudied piece of world history that we have parts of here in the Piedmont of North Carolina. On the other end of the spectrum, sometimes you get people, well, Jason, you had a, a tour of those little kids today. They were like six, and they knew everything about the French and Indian War. <laughs> <laughs> to me, there's so many facets of what's the best part. My favorite part of giving a tour is talking about the Anglo-Cherokee War, and I, um, I try to get tears because it is a horribly tragic story and to get people to realize that the impacts are are not something that's super old and just ancient and disconnected but this is like these things happen to people who are still here you know there's these communities that still exist and in ways feel the impacts of the stuff that happened back then destruction, absolute destruction of the Cherokee Nation because of the Anglo-Cherokee War. They suffered. And I don't know, making making people realize that is uh is pretty important. It's powerful. Yeah. When yes. you when you when you can drive that home to people, and it's a good point. I mean, the fort's cool, the guns are cool, you know, but it's it's a, a very tragic you know, dramatic human story that it was part of, the same history that happened at Bethabara, you know, being able to share all of that, the good and the bad, um, mm -hmm. I think is, is, is really rewarding. I'm not too familiar with the history of the fort other than what we've seen in the records, which, as you stated, Jason, isn't a lot. What happened to the fort? In February of 1764, the colony decided to abandon the fort because of Western expansion. It was basically deemed uh, useless because it was no longer on the frontier. It was left to rot. By the time of the American Revolution, it's actually described as rotting and collapsing. And by the early 1800s, 18 teens, uh, it was pretty much gone. Locals came in and kind of uh, salvaged all the usable materials. It's estimated by the archaeologists that uh, over 7,000 nails were used in the, just the roof of the original fort. And in 50 years of archaeology, we've found 241. You did a really good job stripping the place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the site itself is ultimately cleared for farmland. But in a way, I mean, as much as the building was destroyed, we're fortunate at least that those later farmers, we think they filled in 
uh, either purposely or by the action of the plow, they filled in a lot of the earthen features. So there was a ditch that surrounded the, the wooden building. There was a cellar under the fort. There was a shaft of a well that was inside. And all those earthen features, by being filled, the ground leveled to allow for plowing, they accidentally preserved those shapes, those contours in the clay. Otherwise, archaeologists would have had, yeah, nothing but 241 nails to go off of, basically. But those are the only, you know, extant uh, actual parts of the fortification that, you know, could definitively point to, yes, the building stood right here mm -hmm. uh, and give us clues as to the layout of it. In the preservation story, I mean, the, the Daughters of the American Revolution were responsible for starting to preserve the site. It was just a cotton field in 1909. Some local women decided it should be preserved and protected as part of their colonial past. And if they hadn't, I mean, our, our site today is surrounded by housing developments on both sides. So it's, it's good foresight that they had to protect that hilltop. The other kind of fortunate thing of their purchasing the land in 1909 is the fact that plows at that time hadn't been designed to cut deeper than about six inches. Right, right. So that in and of itself, that the early purchase of the grounds did a lot to preserve the uh, archaeological context of all the materials. That was around 250-ish years ago. So it's fascinating to see how so many years have passed, yet we're still able to find the general location in which the fort stood and recreate it. I love the whole reuse part of it because it's like part of like me is like, oh, we wish it were still here. But another part of me is like, that's history right there. The fact that it was reused and, you know. We would like to thank Scott Douglas and Jason Melius from Fort Dobbs for joining us and giving us more insight into the history of Fort Dobbs. Let us know what you think of this week's episode. And if you have any questions about this week's episode, please email us or message us on our Instagram. This has been an episode of Moravian Mornings, a historic Bethabra Park podcast. If you have any questions or would like our hosts to discuss certain topics, please email us at moravianmornings at gmail.com or message us on our Instagram page, also titled Moravian Mornings. Thanks for listening. Auf Wiedersehen.